So I'm going to start reading at verse 14, go to the end of the chapter, emphasize verses 16 and 17. That's where we were at last week. This is uh, part two of what we were discussing, the scriptures last week, being inspired by God. But I want to back up and read in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3. As Paul, keep in mind, these are the last words of Paul the Apostle. And as we read this, um, this is heartfelt. If any of us were writing for or speaking for the last time to a loved one, and, and Paul and Timothy were very close, he calls Timothy the son of the faith, the true son. And, and so Paul is telling them things as he knows that he's about ready to face the axemen here shortly. We'll see that in chapter 4. But these are important words for Paul, of course, inspired by God. But as we read in verse 14, Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Father, once again, as we, we read this and we consider it, I pray that uh, not only looking at the implication, but the application for us today. We are living in times where we are told are perilous and that evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. So, Lord, how is it that we can be wise and safe in, in, in the days in which we're living in? Uh, we're told here. So I pray that our ears would be open to you, that we are teachable, that, Lord, that uh, we would apply these things in our lives, and, Lord, that we would have the assurance that we can trust your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So you recall, if you've been with us on Sunday morning, that the chapter started out that Paul would write that in the last days it will be perilous times, Timothy. Know this. In other words, this is really important. Not that it might be perilous times. It will be perilous times. And that word perilous means difficult, dangerous, fierce times. And he gives a description of the conduct and the behavior of men in the last days. There's this misdirected love because men will be lovers of self. And then you have 19 characteristics that are listed there. It ends with, in verse 4, of men will be lovers of pleasures, not lovers of God. And so a misdirected love, a love for self, a love for the world, and it's going to show in the conduct and behavior of men. And Paul continues giving this warning to Timothy that there are going to be those that have this form of godliness, but denying its power. And also know that there are going to be those of corrupt minds, their counterfeits, just like it was in the days of Moses, Janus and Jambres. And he says that they are ones that they're always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And, and so this warning that is given to Timothy, and then he continues on, and he says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And I think that we as Christians, that we need to understand this, that the day in which we're living in, if you are really living for the Lord, believe the Bible, that you believe the gospel, that you will be persecuted 
persecuted to one degree or another. It may be from family members or friends or coworkers or whoever the case may be. Because we all know, don't we, that we are living in a world that's becoming more antagonistic against Christianity, against the gospel, and against the word of God. So he says, you will suffer persecution and also know this, that evil men and imposters are growing worse and worse. We're going to see that a last warning is given to Timothy when we move into chapter 4 when he says that the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they're going to heap up teachers after themselves uh, according to their own desires. Uh, They're turned their their ears away from the truth. And so all these things, the scripture is letting us know what it's going to be like in the days in which we are living in. And then he tells us, because he never, the scripture never warns us without having us have a response to it. And the response is those of corrupt mind, those who have this form of godliness, and they may seem religious, they may uh, speak about the Bible or, or speak about Jesus, but they don't have true relationship with him. They don't really trust the scriptures because they don't come to the knowledge of the truth. Those of corrupt mind, those of counterfeit, uh, you need to turn away from such. And then he would say, as, as we discussed a few weeks ago, that Timothy, your response is this, and this is important for us in a day in which we're living in because we can be pulled in so many different directions what is our response and that is we're to continue in the scriptures Timothy that you have learned from childhood uh, from Brephos from an infant as he had a grandmother Lois and a mother Eunice that is mentioned in chapter 1 that spoke the scriptures to Timothy and and planted that seedbed of the word of God to where uh, Paul the apostle on his first missionary journey when he comes into Lystra where Timothy was from and gave the gospel, they would respond to it and they would have this genuine faith is what Paul writes, this genuine faith that you have that I know that was in your mother and grandmother, uh, Timothy. So the, the present imperative for you and for me is in the days in which we are living in, that is perilous and evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse as what? To continue in entertainment or in hype or whatever the case may be? No. The command is given that we are to continue in the scriptures. It's so important that we do that. So we talked about that. And as parents, that we are to speak the truth of God's word into the hearts of our children and to our grandchildren and whoever is linked to us in our lives. Give them the word of God. Because all scripture uh, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-20 was, is inspired of God. And that's where we focused on last time and we're going to continue to talk about. That is, uh, it's one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible that speak of the inspiration. That word literally means God breathe. Uh, the inspiration of Scripture. It's all inspired. Not some of it, not most of it, not just the verses that I like. But it is all inspired by God. And as we discussed last week, we have the three ends, the inspiration of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and the inerrancy of Scripture. And they're all linked together. Because if the Bible that you have in your hand that we study week after week and month after month and year after year here at Calvary Chapel, the Bible that you get to read every day, and you should be reading your Bible every day, constantly, consistently, that we can take it for granted. 
planet. And we can feel the pulls of culture that said it's not important or, um, you know, that you, you should doubt the Bible or whatever the case may be. Listen, this is the God breathed. The origin of the Bible is eternal. It comes from an all-powerful, all-loving God. And as the Holy Spirit moved through men to write the scriptures, that they would write down God breathe and, and what God has to say inspired to the page that we have before us. Absolutely incredible. And it is infallible. That is, that it is unfailing. It's dependable. It is trustworthy. And the scriptures also are inerrant, which means it's incapable of being wrong because it comes from a perfect God. So we, we focused on that last week because I want you in the day in which we're living in to not let anyone come along and tell you that you can't trust the Bible or it's just myths and fables or written by a bunch of men that you can't trust today or it isn't culturally irrelevant. Listen, the Bible is beyond time and culture. It is eternal and we can trust it. It comes from an all-powerful living God. And so as we looked at that, we, we spoke about how we can have confidence that the scriptures are indeed God-breathed, inspired, infallible, inherent, and we can trust the Bible. Uh, the Bible hasn't changed throughout the centuries. And if you weren't here to hear that teaching, go on our website and, and, and listen to the teaching. And I think you'll be greatly encouraged. And it's also going to be able to equip you when those who will come to you, and all of us, I think, will experience it one time you know, in, in our lives, that they will tell you that the Bible isn't true or the Bible's old or you can't trust the Bible and you have good reason to say yes we can trust it and it is true and and you know society and culture is attacking the word of God and the Bible more and more and also unfortunately I believe that there is a diminish of the priority of the teaching of the word of God in the church today so as we read all these things that Paul is sharing his heart, inspired by God to write these things to Timothy, these are the last words of Paul before he faces the axemen. And as we read it, how do we respond to it? How do the scriptures benefit us? Uh, the word of God has divine origin. It is eternal. And the world as we know it, the scripture says, will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. You see, there are some people... Some Christians that just see this book as a religious book or a philosophical book or a theological book and I can never really understand it or, or it's not important to understand it. It's much more than that. And we can never exhaust knowing the scriptures, but we can understand much of what is says, even as a child uh, can learn the scriptures, because as I've already mentioned, that Paul would say to Timothy, the holy scriptures were given to you as a child, and you must continue in the things that you have learned. And I want you to know that we as Christians, we're not a bunch of dunces. Because we believe in the word of God, doesn't mean that we assassinate our brains. How can you, you believe that stuff, people will say. And the Bible was written so long ago. And the, and, and the Bible is full of contradictions and it is archaic. No, this book is the very breath of God given to us and it doesn't change. It is truth. And be careful because you'll hear some that will say, well, the Bible contains truth. The Bible is truth. 
from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And there's power in the Word of God. And there's power in the Gospel. And it has stood the test of time. Do you know that there's no other book that has been in greater circulation or even come close when you compare it to the Bible? And when you... Uh, See that the word of God is under attack since the beginning of time, and it has been when the serpent came to Eve there in the garden of Genesis chapter 3 and said, did God really say? And when it comes to the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible that you have in your hand that we get to study in our own devotions in different times of the week, uh, on Sunday here and Wednesday nights at Calvary Chapel, um, this a book that, that more and more people are saying, well, it's insignificant, it's outdated, it's old. We're sophisticated today. And those who believe the Word of God, that you're dumb or you're weak or you're gullible to read that stuff. This book, inspired by God, has been read by more people in more languages, far more than any other book in human history. The entire Bible has been translated, this is amazing, into 531 different languages. That, that just absolutely amazes me. No other book, ancient or present, can compare to that. And portions of it have been translated in over 2,800 languages or dialects. And now we're translators, um, you know, are going into some of the most remote areas of the world where they have small amount of people and tribes that they don't have a written language. What they are doing and working is getting an audible language that's becoming more available for them. Every year, over 100 million Bibles are bought and given away. Between 1815 and 1975, 2.5 billion Bibles were printed, and presently there's over 5 billion Bibles in circulation on the planet. There's 7 billion people. So 5 billion Bibles, some of those Bibles might be in the lost and found. So if you, if you lost one, please go check it, because there's a number of Bibles that are there in the trunk of your car, at home. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, those Bibles that are on the shelf there, you take it. It's yours to take. And you can have it. I only ask that you read it. But most of us, we have, you know, more than one Bible, um, maybe two or three or a dozen different translations. Um, probably in my office, I got at least a dozen Bibles, different translations, Bibles that people have given to me. Um, at home, another dozen or more. Um, and maybe you have a number of Bibles. I doubt that any of you have a dozen copies of Moby Dick in your house <laughs> or War and Peace. There is no book that can compare to the Bible. So don't let anyone tell you that the Bible is obscure or irrelevant or insignificant because the facts just do not support that at all. And not only has the Bible been preeminent in its circulation, but in its influence. There have been more books written about the Bible than any other subject in human history. More authors have quoted the Bible, more than any other book in human history. There are Bible dictionaries and Bible atlases and Bible encyclopedias. 
lexicons, commentaries, concordance, uh, books on Bible theology by the score, Bible hymnology, mission books from the Bible, books on biblical archaeology and history and languages, books on apologetics and devotionals on the Bible. There are far, far, far more books written about or from the Bible than any other book in human history. So don't let any so-called skeptic or scholar, whoever it might be, a friend or a family member or a co-worker tell you that the Bible is obscure. It is the most influential document in the history of the planet. It has been under attack since the beginning of time from world leaders at times, from Tsars, from uh, emperors, from Caesars, from kings, from politicians, philosophers, professors, people of every background, from the media and Hollywood. You see, they're not attacking the Book of Mormon. They're not attacking the Tripitaka or the Vedas or the Upanishads or the Koran or books on New Age philosophy or on Wicca, they're, they're not attacking that. There's an attack on one book, and that is the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. Because keep in mind, it's a spiritual battle. And all those who have tried to rid the Bible have come and gone. And all those presently that are trying to rid the Bible will come and go. They will live, and they will breathe their last breath, and the Bible will stand. Because the Word of God is eternal. This is an absolutely amazing book that we have the privilege to study every single week, every single day. I pray we never take it for granted. Written by 40 different authors with different backgrounds. Uh, Moses was a shepherd. David, Solomon, they were kings. Amos was a herdsman. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Daniel was a political advisor. You go to the New Testament, Luke was a doctor. Matthew, a tax collector. John was a fisherman. Paul was a rabbi. As you consider, it was written over a period of 1,600 years. It was written on three different continents in Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it was written, the Bible, in different places. Moses wrote you know, the first five books of the Bible in the wilderness. We're reading how Paul here is in a dungeon in Rome as he writes Second Timothy. He wrote the prison epistles under house arrest in his first imprisonment. We know that Daniel would write from the palace in, in Babylon. John, he would write the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ from the island of Patmos. It was written in three different languages, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek with Aramaic also inserted in, in portions of the scripture. And, and as we consider it, this book gives one harmonious message concerning hundreds of topics, controversial subjects. And yet it gives one unfolding message of God's nature, and his character, in his redemptive plan of salvation, about the Lord's return, about forgiveness of sin, about how we can live in righteousness. You know, there are skeptics that come along and say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible. They have to really struggle to try to bring those out, and they can be answered. And you see, I dare any of us that we gather 40 authors 
to write on different topics and see if you get one harmonious message from all 40 authors. I guarantee it won't happen. The Bible in your hand is divine and is a supernatural collection of writings that is the very breath of God, all 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,175 verses, 810,697 words, and over three and a half million letters. I didn't have time to finish counting them, but <laughs> that's, that's the King James. And here is the Apostle Paul at the end of his life giving this last message to Timothy and to us here today. And he says, all of it is inspired. And keep in mind that as you read the Bible, you know, there are those who will come along and say, well, we can't really believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis and, you know, the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and the uh, worldwide flood and all that. Isn't it interesting as we read in Genesis chapter 2 that when God created Adam and he looked at Adam and he was alone, he said, this is not good. And so he created Eve out of his side and woman was created. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he brings them together. And it tells us that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And there we have the biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman, the first marriage there in the garden. And there are people that say, well, we can't really believe all that. And, and it's in, not inspired. And well, Jesus believed it. Because when you go to Matthew chapter 19, here come the religious leaders 4,000 years later after Genesis 2. And they asked Jesus about marriage and divorce. And, and Jesus said, have you not read to those religious leaders? You see, that's a good response to people who come along and, and they try to trick you or back you in a corner. Or, or you just say, have you not read? Just point him to the scriptures. And as we do, Jesus did that. And he said, have you not read? He goes back to what? Genesis chapter 2. And he says that in the beginning, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You see, Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. He believed in the biblical marriage that took place. We know that Paul, 30 years later, he would, when he was writing to the Ephesian church about the roles and responsibility of husbands and wives, he quotes from what? Genesis chapter 2, the same thing. We also know that Paul, when he wrote the book of Romans, that he believed in Adam and he believed that Adam sinned. And because of Adam's sin, sin and death has come into the world. So we have the confirmation of Jesus and Paul, and, and, and you have other events like the flood. Well, the, did the flood really happen, or was it just a localized flood or just a story? Well, Jesus believed it happened because those religious leaders came to Jesus. And they said, where's the kingdom of God? And Jesus began to speak about the return of the Lord. He says, the coming of the Son of Man is like what? The days of Noah. And they were marrying and giving in marriage and buying and selling. Uh, there was normality going on. And then all of a sudden, judgment came upon them. And, and mankind was wiped out. The judgment that covered all the earth. And you see Jesus put his stamp of approval that Noah, the story of the flood, the worldwide flood, really happened. We also know that people come along and they say, well, Jonah swallowed by a large fish. 
Uh, we can't believe that. That's just an allegory. That's just spiritual. Well, Jesus said it happened because remember again, those religious leaders, those who were, you know, the uh, ones who claimed to know every dot and tittle of the scriptures, that they came and asked Jesus for a sign. Show us a sign. Which is interesting because in the, the gospel accounts, in the synoptic gospels, here's Jesus doing every kind of healing, healing of every kind of sickness and disease and working miracles. And here they come along and they said, show us a sign. And Jesus said, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was, what, three days and three nights in the heart, uh, belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It's the resurrection Amen. for this generation and for every generation. And if I have the choice to, to believe some so-called scholar or Jesus, I'm going to believe Jesus. So as we talked about last week, we know that the scriptures, so we can trust the scriptures. We know that the canon of scripture hasn't changed over the years, that, that the Bible dares to prophesy. And one of the major themes of Isaiah is, as we discussed, that all those prophecies that spoke of coming of Messiah and his first coming, and, and what are the odds of one man being born in history, coming along and fulfilling those those prophecies is astronomical. You can't really calculate it because he fulfilled over a hundred very specific prophecies concerning his first coming. And as we know that they were fulfilled to the letter, that when it comes to over 200 prophecies concerning his second coming, I got confidence that every dot and tittle will be fulfilled, even as Isaiah said. That, that these prophecies will come to pass. John in Revelation, write these things down that will come to pass. So the Bible dares to speak of the future, and that's one of the themes that you see in the book of Isaiah. And, and I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 41 um, in verses 21 through 23. And you can go through chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, there's a similar theme. Chapter 46, verses 8 through 10, um, that the Lord says, listen, you're going after that which is false, false worship, false gods. He said, turn to me, I'm the one that's true. And he says to them, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. In other words, it's almost like he's calling those false gods into court. He says, bring your case, you guys, and let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, yes, to do good or to do evil, that we may be dismayed and, and see it together. In other words, can these gods, these false gods that you worship, can they tell what's going to happen in the future? He says in the next chapter, in chapter 42, I'm the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carve images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So again, you have in these chapters through chapter 48, the Lord says, I dare to speak the future. I know the end from the beginning. I alone am God. You cannot compare those false gods to me at all. The reason I kind of am pointing this out is we have very good reason and evidence to have confidence in the inspiration and infallibility and errancy of the Word of God. 
And so what does it mean for us? We can trust the word of God. We know that it is truth. It comes from the Lord. It is God-breathed. And then, as we finish up here this morning, that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the very breath of God, the word of God is profitable um, from beginning to end. It comes from an eternal source, a divine source, from an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who has given us his word, and it is beneficial for us. Don't buy into those who say, well, the Bible's outdated, or it's old school, or in some circles of, of some churches, it's, it needs to progress. This whole progressive theology that, that we're only going to agree with some parts of the Bible, and the Bible's open to interpretation. The Word of God is profitable, and we will reap a benefit from the Word of God, and it will not deceive you. Will you remember that? The Word of God will not harm you. And in 1 John chapter 5, John writes that this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Listen, this is important. Every commandment of God, do you know, is an expression of his love for you. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And he doesn't give you his commandments to burden you, or to harm you, or to make your life miserable. You see, you live after the world, that'll happen. You'll be held captive, you'll be miserable, you'll be defeated, you'll be confused. But God has given us his commandment because he loves you. He loves us. And he doesn't want you to get hurt. And he says, I love you so much. It's a loving father that says, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be defeated. I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be in darkness. So here's my commandment. This is how you are to live and how I hope that we would make that our own in our own hearts that Lord you have abundant life for me that you have a life of peace and joy and to live in righteousness and and we think that that term ooh righteousness it, it just means living rightly to really live life the way it was meant to be lived And so that's why the Bible is so important to us. He loves you so much. He wants your life to be blessed and for you to be free. The world will deceive you. So it is profitable. And how? In doctrine, of course, I I don't need to tell you that's been a theme on Sunday mornings going through these two letters of, of Paul to Timothy. Doctrine. Timothy, don't follow any other doctrine. In this chapter, Paul says to Timothy, you've carefully followed my doctrine. It wasn't that Paul made it up. He was inspired just as the gospel. It was taught to him, as Galatians 1 says, taught to him personally by Jesus. So the scripture is profitable for doctrine, which includes teaching truth. The word is used one time in Matthew. It is used once in Mark. And then Paul uses it 19 times in his epistles. So this is Paul's word. Teach the word. Preach the word will be Paul's final exhortation to Timothy in the next chapter. So doctrine is important. 
As the scriptures tell us, the character of God, the plan of redemption, you know, doctrine of justification, doctrine of sanctification, the return of Christ, um, how it is that we live for him, to please him, to serve him. And there's a lot of strange doctrine that is out there today that it's becoming worse and worse that has crept into the church. Remember Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 9, don't get carried about with various and strange doctrines. And listen, it is more than, you know, somebody knocking on your door, wanting to give you a Watchtower magazine, or a couple guys riding up on their bicycle with ties on, wanting to give you a Book of Mormon. They'll hit you up in, in Target, won't they? In Walmart. Some of you have met those. Hey, we want to tell you about Mother God. And they'll point out the scripture, and they seem like they're, they're very convincing. You've got to know the scriptures. And I'm going to say this once again. I know I'm a little redundant, but if you don't know the scriptures, you will get deceived. There's too many voices that are out there. And so the Bible will keep us in, in true doctrine, in truth. Um, the scriptures are profitable for sound doctrine, what is right and true. And the best way to be established in sound doctrine is to go through the scriptures chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. It is profitable for reproof. Doctrine is what is right. Reproof is what is not right. So we're established in sound doctrine, what is true, and we can bring reproof. It, it speaks of rebuke. So when people around us say, well, I'll be okay. I'll make it to heaven on my own merit, on my own goodness. We can bring them the doctrine of what? Justification. That we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. You can't save yourself. It's only through the cross and faith in Jesus Christ. When people say, well, we're all the children of God. You know, we're all children of God. We can say, listen, the only ones that truly have the right to call out Abba, Father, have the spirit of adoption of those who are in Christ. And we can do that, and we can show them, you know, the scriptures. Listen, there's a lot of people today who have never read a Bible verse. They don't know anything. You know, we have a saying, we know nothing about nothing. They don't know the scripture, so they're just buying into what they're being told, or this is my thought, or this is my opinion. So we can establish them in God's truth. We ourselves need to be established in God's truth, and, and we can bring truth to them. So uh, the scriptures are profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof. Um, it deals with um, doctrine, and then the next two, in correction and instruction in righteousness, deals with the person's conduct. And I think that we've seen very clearly that Paul's teaching is you cannot have proper and right conduct without right and proper doctrine. Proper theology will tell us how to uh, have proper conduct. And we can bring correction to people. Again, keep in mind at the end of chapter 2, you do it in love, you do it in gentleness, able to teach. Don't hold back the Word of God. I think it was Luther or or Spurgeon, or maybe both, has said, it's like a lion, just let it loose. Let it do its job. And it's alive, and it'll pierce people's heart. And in humility, correcting those who are in opposition of God, perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And to say, listen, I care about you, and this is, this is what the Bible says, and I want to bring it to you. So we can give that to people, and please give them the Word of God. When you talk with people, when you speak to people, when you... Speak to your kids. When they have issues and problems, we can give them God's truth. 
Aren't you glad that we have God's word? I am. I'm so thankful that I don't have to live in deception or deceit or be in darkness because he's brought me out of the darkness into his marvelous light. We don't have to live in foolish ways because we have God's wisdom. We don't have to embrace the weirdness of the world. You know, we can avoid the many pitfalls in this life. And then Paul, he says, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we learn the word of God, it matures us as Christians. Listen, I want to say this. There's no other shortcut, no other way to grow. If you're not in the word, if you're not studying the scriptures, growing in the truth of God's word, you will not grow as a Christian. You won't know what the will of God is. You know, you won't know how to live in holiness. And when you look at those in scripture that were used of the Lord in a powerful, mighty way, they were ones who were devoted to the word of God. And as we are devoted, not only in how we live, but it equips us for service, you know, uh, equips us to live a life pleasing to him. I want to know how to be the man of God that he wants me to be. The father, the husband he wants me to be. And I know, guys, you do too. And ladies, to be the woman of God, the, the wife, the, the mother, whoever you are, whatever state you're in, of, of grandmother, yeah. How you can minister to others, how to live a life that shows the reality of Jesus in your heart. So the Bible helps us to know sound doctrine and to equip us to do the work of God. And I just want to say this, don't buy in to that which is false just because it's popular in the culture today. We must avoid that which is false and not be pulled by culture and the pressures that come to us and compromise and what we know to be true. Yes. Devote ourselves to the word. And then we can be diff equipped and we can be benefited and blessed and be strong in the perilous days in which we are in. So, Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this word given to us. And these are very important reminders for all of us to continue in the scriptures that are God-breathed. And we can trust your word. And we can rely on your word. It is for us today. It is eternal. It's beyond time and culture, the latest fads, man's philosophy. It is truth. And I thank you that we can be established in your word. And I thank you that you have given us the plan of redemption, the doctrine of how we can truly be justified that is saved. Telling us of Jesus going to a cross, dying for our sins. Maybe you're here today and you thought, well, I, I thought I was told that if I'm just a good person that I'll make it to heaven. No, you won't because none of us are good enough. Maybe you thought if you heard a Bible study or belonged to a church that, that you would be saved. The church can't save you. The pastor can't save you. Your parents who are Christians can't save you. It is you making a choice and making a decision for Jesus. To understand that we have all sinned and you have sinned. And Jesus died on that cross because of his love for you to die for your sins. 
And as he hung on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. He was put into a grave and he rose again. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Every other religious leader is still in their tomb. Only Jesus, proven he's the son of God, validated what he did on the cross by rising from the grave. And he says, call upon me, believe in me, and you will be saved. You'll be able to have that spirit of adoption to cry out, Abba, Father. It is coming and saying, I'm a sinner, and I need you, Jesus. I believe in you, and I give my life to you. Will you do that right now? He is your salvation. And you can pray right where you are. If you're listening even online or on the radio later, you can pray, Jesus, I come to you right now, just as I am, and I confess that I am a sinner. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for me. Forgive me. That you're alive. You rose from the grave. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I give my life to you. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and for this new beginning and bringing me truly into the family of God. And I do want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, anybody, even if you're out in the coffee shop, we got a prayer team that's coming up here in a minute when we close. Come up and tell them the decision you made. Or if you're listening online or on the radio, give us a call here at the church. Check out our website, calvarychapelgreeley.org. Father, I do pray for all of us that we would have the assurance that your word is truth. To believe your word to grow in your word, to allow it to do its work, that our hearts may be like fertile soil, that the seed of the word may be planted there and take root there and produce fruit in our lives. So Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here and every week when we get to gather, when we get to read our Bibles every day, may we never take it for granted. So Lord, thank you for this time we've had together. Bless everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen.